From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Thanks to the prolonged track record of success, the Florida Athletic Program has a check next to most items on the proverbial bucket list. But this past weekend, one of the few remaining boxes was filled in, with men's tennis claiming its first national title in front of a rowdy bunch of Gator fans in Orlando. On today's show, we'll talk to the man of the hour, championship-clinching freshman Ben Shelton, about their path to glory and what it meant to bring it home for his teammates, his school, and his coach, who also happens to be his dad. Then, FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry join us to talk about tennis's crowning achievement, softball shutout regional, a new head coach for the soccer program, Mike White's latest assistant coach, and more. But first, you couldn't script a better way for the Gators to win their first national championship in tennis, with the coach's son ultimately delivering the moment dreams are made of. It's been quite a week for freshman Ben Shelton, so we began our chat with him by establishing to what degree he had processed what happened on Saturday night. Oh, it's crazy. It's still kind of surreal. It went so fast, the celebration and everything. It seems like from the time that I uh, I finished that match to the time that we were back at the hotel or even to now. It just seems like it just flew by. So it hasn't really completely set in yet, but it's definitely a great feeling. So going back to, to the championship match, you guys lose the doubles point, right? And that's, you know, that's obviously you always want to start with that. That gives you that base to build off of when that doesn't happen. And you're kind of immediately against the ropes in that sense what's the response like what is you know what do the coaches tell you how do you guys work through that as a team yeah well we'd lost a lot of doubles points this season um especially a little later in the season and uh all those matches we were we we're always in it because we we know that uh, we can battle through singles and we're a tough team and uh we're not just gonna uh give in when uh things get tough like that so we, we felt like we were in a pretty good spot. We felt pretty dominant in singles um, the last couple matches. Um, we hadn't lost a singles match in the championship so far in the tournament. So we knew that we had our work cut out for us, and Baylor played an unbelievable doubles point. And uh, we were all ready to, to, to fight hard and I mean, put it all on the line last match of the season. Mm. Was there any kind of, I mean, is there a pep talk that goes into that? Are you guys to the point where you don't need it, you know what you have to do? Or what's the what's the regrouping process like after the doubles point? I mean, we huddle up as a team, just just the 10 players. And, I mean, there's, there's a few words said, but it's kind of just like, all right, we got work to do. Like, come on. Let's get after it. I mean, the coaches, the coaches trust us. They, uh, they know that we, we know what we have to do. And yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's pretty brief. And then we just go out there and get to work. You know, it's crazy watching these matches play out, especially on TV, because it's so chaotic, right? You've got all of these, all these singles matches going on simultaneously. And then 
one point here turns things this direction, this match is tilting another way. What is it like when you're in it? How aware are you of what's going on around you relative to what's happening on your court? Usually, I'm a, I'm a little more aware. That's that's one of my issues, to be honest. <laughs> I focus a little too much on what my teammates are doing and rather than just locking in on my own match. And sometimes I lose focus a little bit. But that night, I uh, I had no clue what was happening on the other courts until five two. I got up and I looked at the scoreboard and I saw that we had three. And um, yeah, but before that, I uh, I completely had had no idea. How, how the other match was going. I heard a lot of roars from the Florida crowd, so I was guessing that it was going pretty well. But um, I was pretty locked in on my match. Hmm. You know, it's funny. At one point on the TV broadcast, they said that uh, they thought maybe you were too pumped up once it became clear that, that you were sort of right on the, the cusp of it. When you saw the scoreboard and you saw 5-2, how did you keep everything in check despite knowing what was going on? I'm not really sure. I, I think it was one of my more calm, calm games that I played in the tournament. I mean, I, I played it pretty smart. I didn't really, I didn't really let out any emotion. I just kind of tried to stay the course, stay within myself. I knew what was happening around me, but uh, I tried to just focus on point to point and not get ahead of myself. And uh, it ended up working pretty well. I mean, I was bringing the energy the uh, the whole match. He was he was feeling it for sure. So that last game, I just locked in and focused on my tennis. I feel like everybody wants to to win it on a winner, right? That's how that's how I would want to do it. So as you as you're backing up on the baseline, you see that shot go long. What do you remember about that moment? Uh, I just I just couldn't believe it when I saw like at forty love obviously I was still, I was still just playing. Like it wasn't really set in like this for the national championship, but it went out and I look over and I see my teammates start spraying towards me. And I was like, Oh my, like we, we just won the national championship. So, <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, I, I love the way that I, I won it. I wouldn't have had it any other way. I mean, an insane winner would have been cool, but that wasn't, uh, that wasn't the type of tennis that I was playing in that third set. And that wasn't my game plan. Hmm. You know, when you look at the bigger picture of this story, for the, the coach's son to be the one to clinch it up, I'm sure you can see why that's just a Hollywood-ready story. Um, right. What does it feel like to be in that story, and, and what does that mean to you? Uh, yeah, it means a lot. Um, obviously, my dad's been my coach since I was since I started playing tennis, and uh, we've uh, we've been through a lot together. Uh, we had a really good first year. I mean, there was obviously some ups and downs uh, with him being my dad and coach. And uh, it was interesting, like, balancing it. And uh, But we got through it. We had a great season. And I was really happy that uh, my, uh, my first year in college that we could do this together. So, yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, and I, I want to dig into that a little bit because I, I do think that's a very interesting part of the story. Um to sort of start that, though, can you tell us where were you actually born and raised? Because we know that your dad, obviously, with his career as a player, then as a coach, he's had a few different stops. So where was the bulk of your time? Right. Um, so I was born right outside of Atlanta when my dad was coaching at Georgia Tech. And I lived there for 10 years and then 
moved to Gainesville, and I've lived here ever since. Hmm. Uh, it's for, so I'm, I'm from Atlanta, and then went to UF, so I had a similar experience there. Uh, what was the transition like for you going from Atlanta to Gainesville, and how important was tennis sort of as a, a construct to help you make that move and build in a, in a new community? Uh, I hadn't started really playing tennis yet. Oh, wow. I was only playing football, really, um, until maybe 12. So after I moved, I had two more years where I was I was still just on, a, on two football teams. So I played two more years, and then I started getting into tennis. Hmm. So what, what got you into tennis? I mean, I would have assumed that you had a racket in your hand from right. day one, right? So how, right. Did, how did that play out? Uh, I'd go out every once in a while and, and play with my uh, dad or my sister, but I, I hated it, to be honest. I didn't mm. like tennis ball. Like, I was like, this is my sport. I'm not playing this. I'm going to play football or basketball or baseball, something else. And uh, we moved to Florida, and one day, I mean, I was just – it was just repetitive, me seeing me and my dad – my sister and my dad go out and practice every day and then going to the courts and watch – watching the uh, guys team, the Gators team play against other teams. And before that, he was the women's coach at the Georgia Tech, at Georgia Tech. So it was a little bit different. I'd never seen like men's college tennis. And uh, I guess I just kind of fall, fell in love with it. I mean, some of your stories about people that, okay, like they didn't start playing football until 16 and then they end up, you know, getting a college offer. I mean, to not have been really a tennis player before 12, I mean that's that's what five six years ago from now. I mean that that's wild. How did you how did you that quickly scale up to be the player that you are today? Was it just that natural talent that is somewhere deep inside your genes? I would assume. Um, I don't know about that. Uh, I just I know that from the very first day I started, like my dad was like, "You started late. You have you have like people to catch. So like your improvement has to be." on a greater level than theirs if if you want to catch them so we were pretty focused on that and he just had me stay the course every single day I was never really too concerned about my rankings or how my early result earlier results were or at least I, I tried to not think about them obviously I got frustrated sometimes but um I just kind of stayed the course and uh we we're just seeing how far I can how far I can go and we're still doing the same thing to be honest so I think that was one of the main ideologies that helped my success the most. There's the push and the pull, I'm sure, right? If you want to, you want to make your family proud, but you also want to, you know, make your own way and, and have your own path. So when it came to where you were going to play in college, did you ever consider doing something different than going to Florida and playing for your dad? Or was that always the, the plan for you? So Florida was probably all my, always my top option. Um, I took one visit to Stanford. Uh, I obviously it's a very very good academic school. So if I wanted to go, if I was to go somewhere other than Florida, it would have been for some special region reason, either something I wanted to pursue academically or something can, completely different about the tennis program that Florida couldn't match. And I went there and I was like, obviously Stanford is an unbelievable place with a great campus, amazing academics. The coaches, Paul Goldstein are, are great. And, uh, Brandon Coop. And, uh, I liked the team, but I just, I came back and I was like, like, it was great, but it wasn't, 
it wasn't enough for me to say I'm not going to go to Florida. Mm -hmm. So you you get on campus, you start your freshman year, obviously under weird circumstances with COVID going on. But I'm just thinking about being the coach's son and the way that that naturally people might think, oh, well, you're going to get favoritism or you're treated differently. Um, How did you approach making sure that especially that, that your teammates knew that everything that you were going to get was going to be earned and that nothing was just going to be given to you, like some would assume in a situation like that? I wasn't too worried about that. I, I kind of laugh when uh, people would make comments like that or something like that because, I mean, they obviously don't know my dad. Because <laughs> he would, he'd never give me anything that I didn't earn. Like if right. I just team, I wouldn't be on it. If I didn't deserve to be in the lineup, I, I wouldn't be in it. So um, I was never too worried about that, uh, what other people thought. I just went along and just focused on proving myself, making sure that I was improving and getting better. And I knew that it would all it would all work out if I did that. I didn't have to worry too much. Uh, even in uh, the quarterfinal match against uh, Texas A&M, there's a few guys right behind me in the crowd. And the match hasn't even started yet. I'm walking back with the balls before I hit the first serve. And they're like, yeah, daddy's boy. We're going to be in your ear all night. And wow. then be daddy's boy. And uh, honestly, I think I played better because of it. I played I played a really good match that night. So, yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah and, and speaking of the crowd, like, what was it like having those crowds there? I mean, that's that's been an element that's been missing for so many sporting events for a while now. How much did it contribute to – that championship feel to have the people that you had in Orlando. Yeah, it was insane. Uh, our fans were amazing. They stayed there uh, through the middle of the night and rain delays. And uh, it was always after midnight when we finished and they always brought the energy. So I felt it I, a lot behind my court. And I, I know that my other teammates felt it behind their courts. And uh, we all loved it for sure. It definitely helped us out a lot. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier kind of going through your freshman year and some of the the uh, the growing pains of defining the relationship, right, of that line between dad, coach, back and forth. How, how did you do that? I mean, what, what was that like throughout the year and how much did it change as you sort of went along? I don't think much changed. Um, I think we got a little better at communicating. There was never really like a distinct like line, like this is when he's coach and this is when he's dad. We just mm. got to a it's kind of both at all times, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And we just we just went from there, and uh, we've gotten pretty good at com- communicating, and we know each other very well, obviously. So it got easier as time went on, and we're working together pretty well now. Yeah, I interviewed your dad a, a few weeks ago, and, and I think he's he's obviously he's very measured. I mean, some you would describe in some cases kind of stoic. Uh, does right. he ever does he ever cut loose? Do you do you get to see a side of him that uh, that that most people don't? Yeah, I'd say every every once in a while I do. <laughs> he's pretty um, locked in at all times. You know, he's a very focused person, and uh, that's that's one of the things that I I have so much respect for him for. Because there's a lot of people who lose lose focus and clown around, including myself, who <laughs> not like at all times of the day. Whenever it's time to work, he's locked in, you know. And whenever we're in season, he's ready to go every day. He shows up every single day, and he he outworks everyone. I mean, he's he's not a player, but as a coach, I, I think he outworks everyone. That's a, 
that's always his goal and he he always comes ready so kind of that's kind of one of his mottos i think and uh, i like that a lot about i guess you don't have a lot to compare this to being that it's your first year and and, and this is how it ended but what is it that you think made this team so special and capable of achieving history? Because it's hard. I mean, you know, when you know that it's never been done by the program, you're the number one seed. The expectations are obviously there. If you're the number one seed, you're going to win. So what made this team capable of overcoming all of that and fighting through getting to the final goal? I think it's because there was never a doubt in our mind. We were working so well together and we had so much trust in all the other guys. Like when, I, when I'm out there playing, I know that they don't need my point. Like there's five other guys out there in singles and a point in doubles that I know I, I, I knew we were going to get four. Like even if I lose, like I have so much trust in the guys that I'm playing with and the coaches and their scouting reports, uh, how they manage the matches with players on courts and how the players manage their own matches and, how, how much energy our teammates on the sidelines bring who didn't get a chance to play that night. I mean, I just feel like as a team, I have, I have so much trust in everyone, all the work that our supporting staff put in, that there was just there was just no doubt in my mind each match that we could come away with the win. So that obviously took a lot of pressure off me, and I was able to play some of my best tennis of the year. So as you, you celebrate, right, you bask in the, the afterglow of this, what plans do you have for the summer? What happens next? Do you get to maybe take some time off and, and enjoy some things for once? So I have a tournament this weekend. So no, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm playing a tournament in Bradenton, and then I'm going to uh, Indiana for a week for vacation. Okay, uh, there you go. And then I'll play a few more tournaments throughout the summer and hopefully play national hard courts at the, at the end of the summer. I have one more year to play that. Do you, do you need a break at some point or does it just, is this just, are you so wired for this? You don't even need to, to step away from it at all. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, if you can relate to this, but sometimes like whenever, whenever I have a good result or um, I'm playing well or something good happens in tennis, I just want to keep it going. You know, I, I don't want to stop. So I'm kind of having that kind of feeling right now. Like obviously there's somewhat like this season's over. Mm-hmm. But stop there. Final thing for you, you know, if this is year one, right? This is this is hard to get to get better, right? The way this ended, the way it went, you can't really do much better. Where where do you go from here? How do you how do you follow this up when you still have so much time ahead of you, but you've already accomplished one of the prime things anybody would want to do when, when getting to school? So I told a reporter this a couple of weeks ago that um, if we did everything that was asked of us if we handled ourselves the right way during the tournament if we competed the hardest we could compete and we came up short and we're working together well as a team and uh, had trust in all our teammates and we came up short I would have been fine with it you know um because I love every guy on the team so much and uh I was just happy to be able to compete with them the whole season and the the brothership that like we created and the bond that we created is way more important than a trophy so, I mean, from here, I think that if we could have the type of season, not not win or loss, but the type of season that we had, just everyday stuff, interactions in the locker room, practices, um, team events, even just hanging out together after practice. If we can replicate something like that, I think it's going to be just as special a season, regardless 
when we win or lost in any tournament. Well, Ben, it's an, an incredible accomplishment. Congratulations. Gator Nation uh, was rooting for you, and they're happy to see you guys prevail. And good luck to you going through the summer as you, uh, as you continue getting after it. All right. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate it. Sports writers spend much of their time trying to find a narrative thread buried within the construct of a game, series, match, etc. But sometimes, you don't have to look that hard for the story. And there's no better example of that than what we saw from tennis in Orlando. A natural starting place for this week's roundtable with Scott and Chris. I mean, Adam, it, it was a great accomplishment that has been building for, like you said, nine years. A Brian Shelton joke leading up to the, the tournament that, you know, Jeremy Foley has nicknamed him the tortoise for the deliberate slow pace that he's that he really just goes about everything in his life. Not only his coaching, you know, that's just his that's his nature, his demeanor. Uh, but it worked. It paid dividends. And I mean, this is a program that you thought two years ago they were right there, lost in the final four. Uh, I think before COVID struck last year, most people have Florida pegged for a return trip to the Final Four. So they had to wait a year longer uh, than they expected. And they got there, you know, losing Oliver Crawford, who was one of their top players in 2019. But they've got a lot of new faces. And the guy who kind of stole the show, at least during that clinching moment, freshman Ben Shelton. I mean, you look at that story, Adam, and if you're watching that, I mean, the announcers were talking about it. You know, you can't write it any better than this with uh, Brian Shelton, a really well-respected figure in college tennis, becoming the first ever coach to win a national title with men's and with women's uh, back at Georgia Tech in 2007. So, I mean, he's proved himself, but his son, uh, ben Shelton, a freshman, you know, he said, hey, Ben was headed to play football a few years ago and finally started showing an interest in tennis. And the Gators are glad he did because he's he's got a promising future for him. But he's also got a, a pretty uh, stellar present, you know, winning uh, that match at number five singles, clinched, the, clinched it for the Gators. And it was really an all around team effort. Great moment for the Shelton, certainly. But you look what Florida did through the tournament in their six matches in the NCAA tournament on the scoreboard they they scored 24 the opponent scored three in those six matches so that was getting it done at a very high level and uh total buy-in um from what Shelton was trying to do I mean this team really did take the personality of its coach in a lot of ways I mean you talk to these guys whether it's Sam or Feast or Duarte Valle or you know his son Ben I mean they're kind of they follow his lead and a very talented team uh, good to see him get it. First one in, obviously, Florida men's tennis history. Joins a women's program that I think has, what, three or four? Eight. I think they have more eight. than that, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Seven, seven eight. or eight, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I'm just thinking it, it, since I've been around, so yeah. Paging role in Thornquist. Uh, <laughs> he's, he'll be yeah. coming up to Scott's office any minute. Yeah. Yeah. What can you say about that program? It's one of the best over the decades. And now I think Brian Shelton has this thing at a place where, you know, the Gators, they're built for long-term. I mean, this you look at this roster, guys, all these guys, except a couple of reserves who we didn't see much, uh, are eligible to come back. So there's no reason to think that the Gators uh, are here for the long haul. But right now, they are uh, standing at the top of the mountain in 2021. I mentioned Roland Thornquist just now. It's just it's a good segue, actually, unintentional. But in 2012, Jeremy Foley went looking to replace Andy Jackson, the, the, the coach at the time. He went to Roland. He says he's the best uh, 
tennis coach in the country. And Roland goes, men or women? He goes, hmm, either. And Roland Thornquist said, it's Brian Shelton of Georgia Tech. And at the time when he came here in 2013, uh, his son, Ben, was a fourth grader who was playing football mm-hmm. and not really a uh, – didn't have a whole lot of interest in tennis. And uh, frankly, you know what? He graduated a year early. He should be a senior in high school right now. And I'm trying to think of, can you imagine – you just imagine being those two, being the father. Everything about Brian Sheldon is rooted in doing the right thing and doing it with class and being dignified uh, no matter the result. And to be rewarded like that, to see your son uh, win a championship and clinch the point, um, I just, that's, a, that's a storybook uh, ending, obviously. Uh, I'm trying to think of, of something you can even compare it to, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are uh, things that just, just nothing pops out in my head right now. But uh, uh, to Scott's point, just a, an amazing accomplishment. I think every year when I do these, uh, looking back, the top 10 moments of uh, the Florida athletic season, I have a hard time. Um, I do a, like a team one and an and a individual one. I have a hard time thinking that uh, what the men's tennis team this year won't be number one in both of those uh, categories. Just a, a quick follow-up on this, Shelton. I read this in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution because they did something on him. You know, that title he won at Georgia Tech in 07 still remains the, that school's only national title awarded by the NCAA. Obviously, they had a shared football title. Wow. And, uh, and it, it also came 14 years to the day on Saturday when he, he won his second. And Chris talked about uh, Ben. Ben, if he, had, if he had stayed in high school, his senior prom was Saturday night. Instead, <laughs> at, at Buholtz High. So instead, he was uh, – wrapping it up for the Gators. So, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be a, there'll be more written, I'm sure about, about that and, and the Shelton's over the, over the years. So while, while tennis did reach the, the top of the mountain this past weekend, uh, softball is climbing. They're, they're in progress as they move up, trying to get to uh, a actually pretty flat place in Oklahoma City, but the mountains is metaphorical. Um, Chris, let, let's talk about this weekend. I mean, it was, a, it was all about pitching for the most part. Every single game in the regional was a shutout, some larger than others. Uh, but ultimately, we knew the story was going to be about pitching. And I guess it was somewhat surprising which pitcher it ended up being about. Elizabeth Hightower obviously was the star of the weekend uh, for the Gators, but um, a constant threat of the weekend was South Florida's uh, Georgina Corrick, who threw a masterpiece Friday night and ended up losing on a walk-off, uh, one-nothing walk-off uh, Hannah Adams in the bottom of seven. Then she pitched two wins uh, Saturday um, for USF to get to the final round, including uh, a, a five-nothing uh, complete game no-hitter against Baylor. And then I think she struck out five of the first six batters she faced um, on Sunday. I, I think she, I, I think the fact, I think she set Florida down, I want to say seven of their first nine or whatever to in, in a, in a scoreless game on Sunday in, in that championship round, uh, Florida finally got to her out of fatigue. I don't know, 400th pitch or something like that um, uh, late in that game and ended up winning eight, nothing by bombing, uh, the USF bullpen. They had a three, nothing lead when, uh, when, excuse me, it was two, nothing lead when she got lifted. Uh, but Florida finally jumped on them and she got it. It was amazing. She walked off the field, you know, Ken Erickson, obviously a great coach for South Florida bulls and, um, uh, USA Olympic coach this year. And she got an amazing round of applause from the Presley stadium fans. 
uh, and rightfully so. It was the end of her career. She was great over the weekend. She was the only reason USF was in that championship round. Now, having said that, Elizabeth Hightower, uh, she pitched a no-hitter Friday night and got lifted without giving up a hit um, in that game. She pitched a no-hitter against USF that she finished to win that game 8 to nothing. So back, so back to my point about, uh, about pitching. Elizabeth Hightower is probably the most accomplished pitcher on the staff, and yet you have Natalie Lugo, who I believe is – she won the, uh, the the middle game, beat South Alabama. I think it was 10 nothing. She has a 19-2 and record. Uh, then you have Katie Cronister, who comes in and pulls them out of you – know, she's relief role. She has, she has has some starting roles. She's a pretty good pitcher in her own right. A left-hander gives them a different kind of look. So a couple years ago when <clears> – <throat> excuse me, uh, Jen Rocho uh, left to become pitching coach at Oklahoma, I think people wonder what's going to happen with this pitching staff now. Uh, when – Kelly Barnhill left. What's going to happen to this pitching staff now? Because they had these players, the three I just named, who didn't have a lot of on the back of their baseball cards, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's give some credit to Mike Bosch, the pitching coach who came down, left his head coaching job at Syracuse, came down. And this is a pretty – it's a solid, deep pitching staff that has put the Gators in position to go to the uh, Women's College World Series again. Um, they got Georgia coming in this weekend. We talked last week. If Georgia makes it, it's going to be a uh, kind of a rehash of the 2016, the last time Florida did not make it to the Women's College World Series due to a walk-off hit off Alicia Ocasio, a walk-off home run, um, That that another very accomplished pitcher. Um, yeah. But, you know, Tim Walton always has a plan. This isn't a great hitting team. He hasn't had a great hitting team the last few years. Okay, and on top of that, it's, it is a it is a top heavy order because uh, uh, you wonder what's going to happen once you get past you know into that six, seven, eight, nine hole. Um, but having said that, they've been able to manufacture some stuff, and we talked about this last week. We keep going back to this. Uh, is that going to? It may be good enough for Georgia once Florida if, if Florida is able to get to Oklahoma City. You know, it becomes a much harder uh, out when you're talking about, um, you know, manufacturing runs against Michigan and UCLA and Oklahoma and the elite programs in the country. Um, But again, Florida, I I believe seven of the 16 teams left in the field are from the Southeastern Conference. Okay, let's not forget that Florida was co-champions of the Southeastern Conference. So if you win this league. You can win on a lot bigger stage, um, but obviously the task in front of Florida right now is beating Georgia and advancing. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Again, lots of storylines there. Florida uh, did pretty well against Georgia and Athens earlier this season. Georgia has been a team that was really scuffling at the end of the year. I think they lost seven or eight straight to end the season, but were able to get a regional due to this quirks about their ability to do the testing and the protocols compared to Duke, who was the seeded team that wasn't able to host. So it was a weird situation that allowed them to host and win. And now they come to Gainesville. And again, it's, yeah, it's, it's the storylines are there. And we'll have to wait and see how it plays out if Florida does return. They got 21 losses. Florida has nine. So, I mean, they're, they weren't great this year, but mm-hmm. obviously they're, they're, they put themselves in a, in a similar position. And they've come in, no one on this no one on the team was here, obviously, when uh, when when they walked Florida off in, in 2016. But the, the the fan, the pregame storyline, all that stuff will be about revenge and yeah. what have you. And, you know, they're the ones that are going to remember that stuff. The, flo- the, the players on the field don't have any recollection of that. No. And that was a that was a one versus 16 matchup. So, again, that's right. That's right. Anything can happen in this tournament, as we've seen time and time again. 
Um, I want to turn our attention to a couple of sports that are in their off-seasons because there's coaching news. We've been waiting on a few of these uh, these pins to drop for the last few weeks, uh, months in some cases. Let's talk first about the, the new head coach of the Florida soccer program, which for its entire history has been Becky Burley. Uh, it is now Tony Amato. What can you tell us about him, Chris, and what he brings to the table? Okay, this is a guy who uh, has been a co- head coach for 18 years at three different venues, at three different levels. Um, He's from Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area, okay? But uh, moved to Florida when he was seven years old, grew up in the Sunshine State, went to to Naples Baron Collier High School, then became a standout player at Rollins High in Division II Sunshine State Conference. Um, Then eventually, almost right out of school, was asked back to coach the women, be the head coach of the, of the Rollins women's soccer team. And that program at the time, Adam, I believe was six or seven removed years from, from being a club sport. And within a couple of years, they're in the NSA tournament. Um, he's there. He, he has a nice little run there. Stephen F. Austin comes calling. Uh, you call mid, low, major, whatever in, in Texas. Nachadoches, Texas. I can't even say Nachadoches. I've never say heard it. of it. I've heard yeah, of the school. Right. I've never heard that's, of the city. That's right. Stephen F. Austin. Stephen F. While he's there, he beats, he beats uh, Big 12 teams. He beats SEC teams. He beats Conference USA teams. And they go to the NCAA two years in a row. They go undefeated in their league two years in a row. Then University of Arizona comes calling. And he goes out there to arguably the toughest uh, uh, soccer conference in the country in the Pac-12. Um, two years removed from a, a team that went one sixteen and two, I think. And within two years, he has them in the NSA tournament, not just that year, but for a run of five out of six years. So he's used to going places and fixing problems. Um, we can have a debate back and forth about how much fixing needs to be done here at, at, at Florida, given uh, the legacy Becky Burley left behind all those championships, uh, 14 SEC championship, I believe 10 SEC tournament championships, uh, 20 some SEC or excuse me, NCAA tournament appearances. Uh, having said that they didn't go to the NCAA tournament to the last three years and they're coming off the first losing season in program history. So, um, there's some stuff to, there's some work to do here. And what Scott Strickland and his search committee found was, in Tony Amato at Arizona was a guy who uh, has gone to places and fixed the culture, fixed what's going on in the locker room, fixed what's going on in the field, on the field. And, and just talking to him, he's, he's up for the task at hand. And the bonus is that he has Florida ties, both at, still in high school, still in club teams. He's from here. So he has an idea of what the Florida standard is. And um, while he, watch the Gators from afar as a division two player at Rollins. He obviously knows what the brand means having grown up here. So a new head coach for soccer. Uh, and now on a, another topic, I know is very, uh, very close to, to home for you on the basketball front. All has been quiet for some time. We escaped the, uh, the chaos of the transfer portal. And now we are waiting to see who the replacements are going to be on Mike White's staff for Darius Nichols and for Jordan Mincy, who both became head coaches. And we got the answer to one of those this week. Yeah, the uh, rather lengthy search. I mean, it had been, uh, I want to say, six weeks since the first uh, Florida coach, maybe in seven weeks by now, um, uh, left Jordan Mincy, got his job at the at Jacksonville University. But uh, Florida's new assistant coach, Adam, is Eric Pastrana by way of Oklahoma State. Um, there, I mean, this... Uh, 
he had been, <clears throat> excuse me, for two seasons there, he'd been the uh, assistant coach and recruiting coordinator. Um, this past year, they, they had the, the number one recruit in the country, uh, Kate Cunningham, who played at Montverde and is expected to be the number one pick in the, uh, in the NBA draft this year. Um, but this is a, it's, it's a Cuban American choice. The guys from Miami, Pastrano was a member of the Latin association of basketball coaches. Um, he was, a he was a high school coach. He was a AAU coach. He was a junior college head, head coach. He'd had stops at, at, at one of his first jobs was with, uh, Frank Martin at Kansas state. Uh, he was at Florida Atlantic. Then he was at Oklahoma state. Uh, one of his JUCO jobs, I think was at Daytona, Daytona state college, I believe. Um, he was, uh, I think he was at Florida international for, for, uh, for a year, about five years ago. So he's bounced around some, I leave out. That's funny. Uh, Tony Amato was at, uh, was at, um, uh, Stephen A. Stephen F. Austin and Pastrana was with them also last year at one time when they won three straight Southland conference championships and they had year in and year out, one of the best defenses in the country. So that's kind of his background is on the defensive side, but the people who know him, call him a connector and a relationship guy. He's a grinder. Players relate to him. And while his expertise may be on the defensive side, he's very well-rounded. He also keeps it light with his, with his players too. So again, um, that's the relationship factor. And that's what you want from a, from an assistant coach. Um, Eric Pastrana's hiring leaves another, leaves one hole still to be filled. Um, I think by the, when we have our podcast next week, uh, we'll be able to talk about uh, whoever that next play, whoever that next uh, assistant coach is. Then we'll be able to talk about him. Then we will wait patiently for the the next drop as it comes here in the off season. Um, you're moving on to our PAT. You know, as we've gone through the last couple of weeks, there's an excitement building uh, about the return of live events. Right, so uh, sports are back. We know in Gainesville they're back now for sure, uh, which means there's other things starting to happen. More dominoes are falling. Concerts are coming back on the schedule. You guys know how much that means to me. Uh, I actually just I, I booked some tickets. I bought some tickets this past week for some shows. I'm going to see Green Day. Fallout Boy and Weezer. That's going to be in uh, at Truist Park in Atlanta in July, uh, and I'm going to see Evanescence in December. So I'm I'm all I'm all jacked up right about these about these concerts I get to go to after all this time. So I want to know from you guys. They don't have to actually be on tour, um, but if you could pick one show to go to that would be your return to live events to concerts. Who would you want to see, and where would you want to see them? I'll give it to you two ways. Well, I hope you have. Uh, I hope you enjoy your time at those concerts of people that I've never heard of. But, You've never um, heard of Green Day? It's no, not I've, possible. I've, I've actually heard of Green Day. Okay. Um, but I, I thought you were gonna go with like Demi Lovato or something because <laughs> I know I know you're a big Demi Lovato fan, and and I'm sure Scott. I mean, he's gonna go down the pike with something like. I don't know, Motley Crue or, or something along the lines of the, the really heavy metal kind of stuff. Um, you know, I've seen just about anybody that that's still alive. I think that, that I'd want to see um, with the possible exception. And I don't, and I doubt if they'll ever uh, reunite, but I would love to go see an REM concert. Huh. And um, it, it, I think they shut it down in 2010 and I think they've said they were never going to play again. But uh, it's amazing how some people, I think, 
think the Eagles said that too. And they've had like 17 reunion tours or something (laughs) like that. Um, including one called the, uh, when hell freezes over tour, I think. Um, (laughs) so, uh, if REM could do a concert, uh, I would love to see them. They're fabulous. And if I could pick a place to see them, I would come up your way and Adam, you and I, if my wife didn't go, maybe I'd take you and we could go see them in Athens, which is where they're from. Okay. That would be a really cool thing in, in a perfect world. Um, maybe a more contemporary name that, that, one guy I really respect as a musician that I wouldn't mind seeing younger, more, more contemporary. Like I said, I'd like to see Bruno Mars. I think he's an incredibly talented musician who you see him play the drums. You see him play the guitar. You see him play. I think I saw him play a saxophone one time. Uh, uh, You see him singing. Uh, He's obviously got a phenomenal voice. Uh, I still think in the last um, 20 years, he may have had the best Super Bowl performance. I think uh, for any of those halftime um, uh, entertainment guys, but come just off the top of my head. That's what I got. I actually have heard a couple of those. Uh, I, I just don't know any of the mu- music. That's what I, I do. I do know some green days. I do know some green day songs. Though. I, I knew that you did. Right. Um, I, I will, I will note about Bruno Mars. I actually saw him a few years ago, uh, at music midtown in Atlanta, which is where it's outdoors at Piedmont park. It's a big festival. Uh, and we got there really early and we're just crammed in, you know, all sort of just shoulder to shoulder to get the best spot to see him. And he was electric. I mean, he's an unbelievable live performer. He's one of those that everybody should see, even if you're not a huge fan. He's the kind of, you know, when they say, you know, they don't make them like that anymore, whether it's regards to movies, TV shows. He is that when it comes to artists and entertainers, for sure. What about you, Scott? Are you going to be as predictable as Chris and I think you are? Because I'm just waiting for Chris to say, you know, maybe some Motley Crue. I'm thinking you're just going to throw the stones out there. Let's see if – are you going to catch us off guard today or what? Well, first of all, the fact that Chris assumes that, you know, maybe he's he's aware that Motley Crue and Def Leppard are actually getting together this summer for a tour. So Chris may be the one who already has tickets there because I was not aware of that until I looked Motley Crue up here on the uh, internet. I believe uh, it's been delayed until 2022. Well, I'm, I, I will not be going either way, although I did, <laughs> go, I did go see Motley Crue in my second ever concert, the Lakeland Center, uh, 1987, with a band called Guns N' Roses opening up for them. Quite a concert, but they are kind of cartoon characters in some ways at this stage of their career. Uh but, you know, I'll take this like if I could see any concert that still relies as a possibility, I would love to still see a Led Zeppelin concert in London uh, with John Bonham's son on drums uh, like they did back in 2007 at the O2 Arena, which I have that on uh, DVD, which I don't know if you know what that is, Adam, but it was like I'm, I'm familiar. I'm familiar. Yeah. <laughs> Laser. So, I'm actually. I'm, I'm. I was always more of a laser disc kind of guy. But laser. Oh, I got you. But you know, honestly, or uh, in all seriousness, a concert I've already looked into buying tickets this summer for before this podcast topic ever came up. I'm a big Chris Stapleton fan. I love the. I love the guy's voice. I think he's got one of the best deep singing voices. And you know, and I don't know what he is. I mean, he's obviously rooted in country, but he's also got a little bit of rock in him uh, i think he can do anything with that voice of his uh and he's playing a amphitheater tour and an arena tour uh later this year so he's getting down this way some so that would probably be a solo artist i'd love to see 
and this is going to maybe surprise, like you're all talking about Super Bowl shows. To me, the best Super Bowl show ever was I loved Lady Gaga's performance a few years ago. Awesome. I would actually, I would actually pay to go see her a concert and like i would have never have gone to madonna when i was younger like it just wasn't my thing at that point but for some reason as i gotten older i really like lady gaga so you know go figure man go figure also an incredible live performer um but you're gonna have to gonna have to save up some save up in, in the piggy bank for that one that was she is an expensive artist to see bruno is as well who who isn't though nowadays I yeah mean, most, like show, I, most shows are expensive that's like, true you two concerts were like $225 or something like that. I mean, and, and that's, that's probably like, that's probably considered reasonable now. Well, listen, if either one of you guys want to come see Green Day, Fall Out Boy, and Weezer, uh, tickets are very affordable, only $65. So we've got, well, you know, you can, you can stay at the house. I got a couple guest rooms. We'd love to see you guys. But until then, until then, keep on doing what you're doing, uh, bringing us lots of coverage of Gator Athletics. Again, moving further into the postseason here. Uh, lots going on with baseball, lots going on with softball. So uh, please be sure to check these guys out at Gators Chris, at Gators Scott. Uh, and of course, you can find them as well on FloridaGators.com. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice. And please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at FloridaGators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.